if life got started on Mars but then went extinct, what was the fundamental shift in the planet's evolution that drove that to happen? Um, or if it's still alive, of course, that that is a paradigm-shifting discovery, right? Confirmation that we are not alone in the universe. Uh, so, yeah, I'm here with Dr. Amy Williams in, of the Geological Department. Geological Sciences, yep. Full professor, uh, no, uh, assistant, assistant professor, professor yep. tenure track. Yeah, so thank you a lot for this conversation. So we were just talking and that I think it's very important for these conversations because you get to know that uh, the other person at least more deeply than a normal quick interview. So on that note, uh, I want to I ask you about your early career. Like, how did you start thinking about these problems? When did you start thinking? What interested you in them? And yeah, like, it was there like moments that sparked that curiosity into this crazy field? Because it's not, as you said, it's not really a mainstream field maybe or not I'm, mainstream in the term it's not, not like a normal thing that people go it's like oh i want to go to geology right it's like a cool niche thing that is like difficult to find right i would say what i do now as an astrobiologist mm -hmm. um and a geobiologist i feel like that's almost more niche mm -hmm. uh, at this at this point and even those are becoming mainstream so i mean geology is is you know one of the four big mm -hmm. sciences, right? Physics, chemistry, biology, and geology. And, and I feel like so often geology is left out of that mm -hmm. story. Um, and it it's just so fundamental, at least in the way that I explore all of the sciences together in a multidisciplinary way as a scientist. I find that that geologic knowledge, it really enriches the way that I can think about physical systems working and evolving. So it's, it's important to me that people know that geology is um, a science, that it is an option, you know, in, in school to learn about, not that you need to major in it necessarily, unless that's your passion, like it has become for me, but that it's one of the pillars of the hard sciences that I feel like it's uh, looked over sometimes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's just so, it really does, I feel, enrich the conversation when you talk about physical processes on Earth and on other worlds, which is where my whole line of research has ended up going. So what exactly is it? You, you started talking about it, the study of physical processes, but what are those processes? Why are they important? And yeah, what do you think it makes it makes your experience of science is more rich. Yeah, so I mean, when people hear that you are studying geology, for example, when I was in college, they said, "What are you what are you going to do? Learn about rocks?" <laughs> and it was it's so, you know, often said almost in a joking way like, "Well, that's not real science, but, you know, geology is so much more than just the rocks, right? It is the chemistry of the entire earth." And it's mm -hmm. not just that, but it's the, the physical processes and tectonic or planet-wide processes that enable Earth to be this habitable world where life has been able to evolve and thrive. Um, so on Earth, you know, one of, the, one of the major studies of geology is 
tectonics or, or the way that the, the thin kind of plates on the surface of the earth move around in response to basically these um, big changes in, in heat and energy from our mantle and from our core of the earth. And so because we can have things like mid-ocean ridges that are um, spewing out new rock effectively, okay. and they're kind of pushing plates apart, and then we mm -hmm. have these regions where plates are actually subducting underneath other plates and going back down in, into the mantle. Mm -hmm. um, these processes, I don't think people get the opportunity in primary and secondary school very often to learn about this, but they are fundamental to how the earth functions as this dynamic planet. And, you know, many people argue it's one of the reasons that earth is habitable because mm -hmm. you have this cycling of elements, cycling of, of chemistry from this really large scale process um, that, that allows, potentially allows life to thrive on earth the way that it does. Mm. So, and um, yeah, and that can spark a conversation of, is that a, needed thing for other planets and um, because you're studying mars mm -hmm. and i imagine mars have at least some kind of similar uh, dynamics of plate tectonics or something like that not really no i'm longer. just talking about my ass. yeah no so i mean this is that you're you're hitting right at the point uh -huh. that people are trying to understand what what different factors are required to make um, a planet habitable to make right. it to make it really reasonable for life to survive there. And so, while we think that Mars had plate tectonics very early on in its history, those tectonics um, have effectively shut down. And mm. in part, that is because um, so Mars is is much smaller than Earth, and um, the geodynamo is is kind of the term that we use to describe the circulation of the. Um, a planet's core, mm -hmm. which is going to generate a magnetic field. Mm -hmm. And um, it is the dynamics within that core and the mantle and kind of circulation of energy mm -hmm. within the mantle that allows plate tectonics to to function. Okay. And so, so if you have hot material upwelling, that is going to eventually break through the crust. And when that happens, that, that material, it's rock, mm -hmm. right? So when it, when it reaches basically a, a surface that's much colder and lower pressure than it was when it was inside the, the planet mm -hmm. in the mantle, it's going to cool off and form rock. Mm -hmm. And so in order to um, maintain the same size of the planet, basically, if you're making new rock in one place, you need to recycle or remove rock in another place. So that is the sort of the, the fundamental basic level of plate tectonics. But on Mars, we don't see active plate tectonics. There is no magnetic field. So we believe that the geodynamo, so that circulation of the core inside of Mars, has um, slowed down or stopped in a way that it's not driving plate tectonics anymore. There's no magnetic field anymore. And then mm. that actually... Um, really speaks to the big problem uh, of habitability, modern habitability on Mars, because there's no magnetic field to protect the planet from solar wind, right. which means that your atmosphere gets blown away. Um, you have much higher um, radiation fluxes to the surface. Which from can the be, sun or yeah, other sources. Well, yeah, galactic cosmic rays, yeah. yeah, solar winds, the whole nine yards. And so mm -hmm. that ends up being, it makes 
as far as we understand life, you know, life as we know it, it makes for a very challenging environment, at least on the surface of the planet. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, and to answer all these questions, we've figured out a way to send send vehicles and into the surface and, of course, into the orbit. So that maybe is a way to introduce curiosity and perseverance that you've talked to, that you've worked with uh, for a couple of years. So I'm interested in what do you think those are important and why why spend all these resources studying, you know, like the question that it's on a lot of people's minds, like why spend all these resources studying another planet where you can spend them here? And, and also when you cover that, like why Mars specifically? Oh man, so many, so many things to speak to there. So, uh, you know, first off, yeah, I've, I've had the opportunity to work on NASA's uh, Curiosity and Perseverance rovers, mm-hmm. um, you know, really extraordinary opportunities, and mm-hmm. I definitely recognize that. Um, I joined the Curiosity mission in 2009 as a PhD student myself, and now um, as a researcher on, on both of those missions, I have the opportunity to help the PhD students working in my lab join the missions as well. And so that is very fulfilling to me on a personal level to, to enable that and hopefully open up opportunities and avenues for those students to build their planetary science careers, you know, in, in, in some of the ways in which I've had the opportunity to do so as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so for, for the missions, you know, it's, I've been on both missions since the beginning um, for both of them, which is a unique opportunity. And I've been trying to um, basically like give as much of myself, my, my professional resources to it as possible because it is so extraordinary and we do have the opportunity to make incredible fundamental discoveries, not just about, you know, one of our nearest neighbors, planetary neighbors, Mars, but the information that we get from that actually feeds into a better understanding of Earth and of the inner rocky planets, um, how they formed, why they're different. You know, one of the things about Mars that's really striking to me is that, you know, the inner rocky planets, they all formed at the same time from similar processes, but they are so extraordinarily different from each other. And, and Earth and Mars, you know, start out so very similarly. And then their planetary evolution just diverges so greatly, right? In Earth, it, you know, becomes this not only habitable, but inhabited planet. And we have those questions about Mars. We know it was habitable in the past. We know that there was water. The question is, was it ever inhabited? And is it still inhabited? Mm-hmm. Um, that really speaks to sort of the core of at least Martian astrobiology and the questions that we want to learn about that. If life got started on Mars, but then went extinct, what was the fundamental shift in the planet's evolution that drove that to happen? Um, or if it's still alive, of course, that that is a paradigm-shifting discovery, right? Confirmation that we are not alone in the universe. Um, and, you know, as, as a kid, I always kind of pictured, you know, looking up at the stars that someone was out there on a world somewhere looking up at the stars in their sky and thinking, I wonder if someone is out there. And so the two of us thinking this at the same time, light years apart. And so, you know, to that 
that little girl who was thinking those things, you know, me as a child, this, this is really fulfilling to be able to try to answer these questions with these missions. And right now, you know, the technology that needs to be developed to send humans to Mars, we're working on that, but it's, it's significant. It's substantial development to send people and to bring them back. And so, you know, as we develop our technologies to enable that, we are also developed like that, that feeds into the technologies that build these extraordinary rovers that we're able to send, um, not only to Mars. I mean, we're, we're, we send missions to other worlds as well. Um, but Mars is relatively close in the grand scheme of things. Um, and because we've had the opportunity to explore it a decent amount, we are more advanced, I would say, in our technologies to, to land instrumentation, rovers, and missions there, and to learn more about that world. We've, we started in the, in the 70s, even before the 70s, but Viking, um, the Viking landers were the two that landed in the 70s and kind of started our in situ exploration of, of these worlds. And it's very funny about the girl looking at the stars because it, it really is a paradigm shift to find another life, even if it was, if it existed millions of years ago. Because mm -hmm. I don't think people realize the, the how long has Earth and Mars has been here, or at least since the creation of the universe, the the Big Bang. So there has been a lot of time for life to develop, right? Yeah, so, yeah. And, and we, we really think, I mean, you said millions of years, but truly we're billions, looking on billions right. of yeah, years, yeah, yeah, time yeah, yeah, scales. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think I think that that really is an interesting question. And is that is that the motivating factor? Is like, is that when you've met people that are working in curiosity and perseverance, is that one of the main motivations of just like that philosophical curiosity to figure out whether we're alone or not and the implications of that. And yeah, because I would imagine like you could say, oh, this is cool or maybe I'm making good money or something like that. But uh, yeah, like I want to push more on why this is important for you oh, and yeah, sure. why this is important for the people that are doing this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, I do get that that question, you know, like are you investing resources in something that's sort of pie in the sky, uh -huh. you know, exploration for the sake of exploration? Mm -hmm. And and I would push back on that and say that it's 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 not that those resources are going to go to something else in the you know, some, some other purpose, right, on earth. And, and we do get that kind of pushback sometimes, but the, the point is that it's not an either or. Yeah. Um, that exploration and scientific inquiry and understanding of the natural world is vital to the survival of not just humanity, but basically humans are able to impact the world in a way that other species have not mm -hmm. been able to do so since effectively uh, the evolution of photosynthesizing bacteria, which did fundamentally change the atmosphere on Earth mm -hmm. billions of years ago. So it's not just the survival of humanity, but it is our responsibility to be, res to be responsible stewards of the Earth. And so in my mind, that goes to understanding not just earth science and environmental science and, and, and 
you know, core sciences, right? Physics, chemistry, biology, geology, but to understanding that on other worlds as well. And so again, you can learn so much about the evolution of a planet by by studying it in the way that we are able to with Mars and with these missions, uh, with Curiosity, Perseverance, the missions that have come before, and especially the missions that are that are upcoming. Um, so you know these these resources that are invested in these missions. You know it sounds like a lot to say two point five billion dollars on a mission, mm-hmm. but if you look at where two and a half billion dollars is spent by any uh, global economy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, basically around there's, the world, there's, it's, there's it's plenty of money around for this thing. And even if yeah. it's even if it's just exploration for the sake of exploration, I think that even is a noble, uh, a, a noble thing to do. Like just exploration, just to push the boundaries of what uh, what's actually possible for civilization. Like what what else? What how cool can you get more than that? Right? If there's a cool factor, absolutely. I mean, I think that we are. I think that the scientists who you know, and engineers, the whole team who participates in this kind of work, you know, we do owe it to everyone. You know, it's not just about exploration, right? It is science. It is about pushing Mm -hmm. the boundaries of science because science is the way for us to move forward, the way for us to survive. Mm -hmm. And it's important for us to understand, um, our natural world and that extends beyond just the atmosphere of the earth right the our natural environment is the solar system is the galaxy is the universe right and yeah. it, and if you care about life you would you would probably care about what happens to human life over the course of millions of years and understanding how life originated might be a good way to figure out how to keep life alive yeah. right over yeah. millions of years cuz i think when you look at the big picture, maybe Earth is fragile, and we should for sure preserve it. But it, I, I would say it's smart to have a plan B, just in case, right? And understanding what happens in other planets, how life originated, it's a way to maybe make sure that we can continue our our journey, and we can continue being humans in even if it's in just other planets or in earth and in other planets at the same time i think yeah i i I think looking at it's it's still important to look at the big picture definitely it's important to look at what's happening right now but as you said it's not a it's not an either or like we need people looking at problems right now and we need people looking at problems in solutions the for Solu- the future, right? No problems yeah. in the future. Oh, solutions well, for the future. There'll always be problems in the future, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that people, yeah, that I get a lot of questions about, you know, uh, when are we going to colonize Mars? And I'm like, that is so far ahead mm-hmm. if it is possible, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like exploration is one thing, right? People expect explore Antarctica for example right what we would deem for humans to be an extreme environment and yes there are a handful of people who live there year-round in order to keep facilities going but it is a handful of people because it is a very challenging place and without resources being brought in from Mm -hmm. the outside effectively for humans is not a habitable Mm -hmm. environment and I think that that and Mars is worse (laughs) and Mars is far more challenging you can't breathe the air there Uh so yeah it is 
it, so I appreciate taking the science that we're doing, the exploration, technology development, and the concept that maybe, maybe we can become an interplanetary species. But we are so far away from that. And one of my concerns truly as a scientist is that as if people don't place value in the science we're doing today, mm-hmm. how do they think we're going to get to right. the science yeah, of tomorrow? That's fundamental, right? Yeah. 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 And even when we get to Mars, we'll, we would still need uh, people studying other planets. And maybe, oh, now we're here on Mars. Maybe we want to go to Jupiter's moon or we want to go outside of the solar system. Uh, so, yeah, science will never be not important. Right, yeah. It'll never be done, right? There's no there's yeah. no end point. Like, all right, the science is done now. The science <laughs> is never done. <laughs> and yeah, and, and it's cool. So we can maybe we can stick on Mars. We've already been with a couple of rovers. We've sent no more than ten, but somewhere around that number, right? Of of rovers with Curiosity, Sojourney. Um, oh yeah, not even not even ten. Uh, at least um, five. So. U.S. Yeah, so so, yeah. so Sojourner, uh-huh. um, the Mars Exploration Rovers, Spirit and Opportunity, right. Curiosity, right. and now Perseverance. And we have mm-hmm. several landers, right, that don't have mobility capabilities but landers are a a much more cost effective way to send something if you know if i land here i can do the science i need to do but rovers they give you so much more flexibility Mm -hmm. to to accomplish the science that's part of your your primary mission right and that's basically what you need right because at least for your research you i would imagine you would definitely need that ability to move around to explore different points of interest and based on what you want to discover, right? Uh, so I found it really interesting that yours was, was uh, I want to ask you, like, for Perseverance, was it that they landed specifically in that, in the place that has the Delta or they drove to the Delta? And maybe you can explain what the Delta is for people that have no idea. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, so um, Perseverance is um it it serves two purposes one is to explore this location you you were talking about jezero delta Mm -hmm. and inside of jezero crater Mm -hmm. and i'll define a delta in just a moment but you know the it's not just to explore just to see what's there um so you know each of these missions we you know especially for the cost, but also to accomplish the best science that we can in the lifetimes of these missions we have certain uh, mission goals, right? The the, the prime mission for cur- for <laughs> perseverance is to um, look for geologic units that might be able to preserve evidence for ancient life on Mars. Okay. So not not modern life, but extinct ancient or ancient life. Yes. So that's one of the big goals of this mission, and we sent it to Jezero Crater because it has this delta in it. And so a delta is a um, name for a geologic formation that forms when a river is flowing into a lake. Mm-hmm. And so you can imagine, picture the, the muddiest river you've ever seen. If, if, if people have seen the Mississippi River, right, it's basically mud-colored because it has um, rocks and silt and mud uh, within the water column. And so when all of that material flowing in a river flows into a standing body of water, like a lake or, or the ocean, in the case of the Mississippi, um, you can imagine the velocity of that river slows down suddenly. And that water 
um, you know, starts to fill into the basin and the sediment that was in the water column settles out. And so it's going to deposit on the ground. And when, so ground being what's underneath the lake surface. So these structures, um, they're called delta, deltas because they actually, in some cases, actually look like the, the Greek, you know, delta <laughs> shape. Oh, I, yeah. I didn't make the connection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So like the triangular uh-huh. shape. And these deltas, um, at least on Earth, are habitable environments, right? You have an influx of nutrients you have water Mm. you know you have um at least on earth a source of organic carbon and so those are kind of the the big things needed for life to survive on earth and so we use our our knowledge of life on earth and life as we know it and um leverage that to say what's a really good environment to search for evidence of ancient life on another world Mm. and so because the geology of Mars is actually quite similar, except for the lack of plate tectonics. Um, Geology of Mars is quite similar to Earth. We can use these principles of uniformitarianism. Basically, what happens today are the the same processes that were happening even in the ancient past. And so we use those principles to say, okay, this delta on Mars, we know it was formed by a river flowing into a lake. And we know where to look for evidence of life in deltas on Earth. So let's leverage that information to search for that evidence of ancient life on Mars in Jezero. And I think that's wonderful, right? Like, how, how can you study something that happens here on Earth, ap- apply the same principles on another planet, and figure out the past of that planet? That's just wonderful, right? Yeah. I think... And maybe like the whole science process as a whole of how do you describe it? Like compare one one environment with the other and just assume that the rules are the same. And just by knowing the rules, you can get this whole log of how things have, not only what happened in one specific moment, but how things progress. That's right. And you can see like the history like play out. It's like a, a video that's, almost like you know that just like a like a, a time lapse a time lapse. yeah yeah so i mean you have just like perfectly encapsulated why geology attracted me as mm-hmm. a student as a, as a college student because i i discovered for the first time that you can look at uh, a wall of rocks an outcrop um of of rocks made of for example sediments mm-hmm. and I can basically read each layer of that rock like pages in a book. I can reconstruct mm-hmm. in my mind what happened mm-hmm. in that environment millions, billions of years ago because those principles are, are the same for why those rocks deposited the way they did and what environments they they represented from the past. So that's been, that was like what drove me to join geology, take it on as a major and pursue it as a career because you can learn about the ancient past in excruciating detail <laughs> just from looking at rocks. I mean, that's pretty incredible. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. And leveraging that with the knowledge of how life evolves because you would only not only know how rocks have uh, transformed like and evolved through time, but only you know you need to understand how life evolves, right? And what are the conditions? So maybe you can touch on how do we know that those three components that you mentioned, why are they important? And 
why do you think yeah like what why are they important for for life so assuming that there was life in mars uh what would finding this component uh might be an evidence of yeah yeah so you know the the generalization for what at least microbial life so like our bacteria and archaea on earth that's that's sort of what we're looking for on mars at this point i imagine if there was dynamic macrofauna it would have introduced itself to us at this point on mm. mars right so so i'm not looking for macrofauna do you mean like maybe some animals tree? okay okay yeah plants animals large okay. m large can be the size of an elephant yes, or it yes, can yes. actually just be the size of a multicellular okay. microbial organism, right? So it can still be extraordinarily small right. from a human perspective. Right. And I don't think we found elephants in Mars yet, right? Exactly, right? <laughs> so so the fact that it's been challenging to find evidence for life on Mars thus far, you know, indicates that it it it's not prevalent if it is there. Mm -hmm. Or it's somewhere we haven't been able to explore yet. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the like two different things you mm -hmm. have to address with that. Um but Certainly, our we only have the one data point for life, and it's life on Earth, right? And so just like with geology, we need to take what we know and try to apply it to how do you search for life beyond Earth. So we say, okay, let's take what we recognize as a bias towards terrestrial life, the things that it needs, and let's apply that to that, that search beyond Earth. And, and on Earth, what life needs is water is a universal solvent, Um, it needs um, an energy source, so that can be sunlight or that can be um, chemical energy. So basically, reduction in oxidation processes or what we call redox, so chemical energy. And then it needs carbon. And so all life on the Earth is carbon-based. The redox carbon processes could come from the energy inside the core of the planet. Oh no, not even not even like that. No, just changes in redox state of minerals okay. so there there's entire suites of organisms on right. earth that basically eat rocks mm. and that's where they get their their energy from oh cool yeah 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 <laughs> so so all of that and then and then yeah carbon as sort of the third pillar on you know the the um stool of things that you need for life right you can sit on your little like bench stool or, or lab stool you know and it's got the three legs and that's what i really picture it as carbon water and a source of energy for metabolism and so using those you know the search for those three in environments on mars is is a really good starting point for how do you look for an environment where life would want to have lived in the past even if that life isn't there today Right. And real quick for the carbon and the water, is it carbon is it's just because life as we know it here on Earth is mostly made of carbon. Correct. And water, because if you take water away from most at least most of organisms, I imagine that there's some exceptions. But if you take that, it dies. Right. Water water is required to maintain um basically the the chemistry within a cell okay that's because water is present on earth that is how life on earth has evolved to regulate its homeostasis right by balancing the concentrations of solutes and water within a cell relative to what's outside of it what's mm -hmm. outside of the cell so that's where um you know our expectations for terran life 
really color our search for life on other worlds. Now, if you go to a, a world like Titan, where you have lakes of methane and ethane, so, you know, organic carbon is now the solvent. The, one of the big questions is, how what would life look like if that was its solvent instead <laughs> right. um and so these you know these are huge questions and we're sending nasa sending a mission um to titan in in um and the titan coming is years. one of jupiter's moons yeah okay <laughs> um so I'm so terrible at remembering this now. When it comes to the outer worlds, I'm I, I'm so bad about it. I'm being like the out. <laughs> I say the outer worlds, and uh -huh. I don't specify because I lose track no of which. And I mean, they are they're 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 basically planets orbiting these gas giants, right? We call them we call them moons, but they're effectively their own worlds unto yeah. themselves. And they're almost planet Earth size, right? Um, I, th I think at least Titan either is Titan almost maybe. almost as big as Earth or a little bit bigger, maybe. Maybe, and I don't remember yeah. the details. Yeah, but like, but like you know, Europa and Enceladus come up as very intriguing mm -hmm. outer worlds because they have these liquid water oceans. Mm -hmm. um, so again, playing into our um, not only desire but but also, I mean, it makes sense. Like, look for life that looks like what you know, right? Mm -hmm. And then you can expand out from that and say, what would life look like that doesn't look like Terran life? Um, yes. You know, could there be life on Titan? What happens with these these organic solvents instead of having water as a solvent? You know, those kinds of questions that are further out there, but are still questions that we're asking about astrobiology and the search for life beyond Earth. How diverse is it? How What's its ability to use different kind of building blocks or building blocks that are different from life on earth as we know it yeah because it's very weird right because we haven't found any other signs of life from other planets but yeah. it might be because we're looking at things wrong in the wrong way right we're making the wrong assumptions maybe we are maybe we're not so at, at least that adds to the to the complexity and the interesting part of the problem right how how do you approach finding something that you have no idea you have you've only one sample size yeah right so it can you have no idea if it if it could have evolved from way way different conditions with way mm -hmm. way different elements maybe it doesn't even have to be carbon based right um and you can be like silicon based or something weird like that people love to go to silicon based life <laughs> yeah 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 i mean and there are all these all these ways to study you know, the fundamentals of like basically chemical bonding, like why does it make sense that life would have to be carbon based? Why is it mm -hmm. actually a challenge to have silicon based yes. life? And so there are fundamentals of mm -hmm. of chemistry mm -hmm. um, and physics that that do provide hard boundaries as far as we understand mm -hmm. to to the ability for for. Um, life to evolve and for these chemicals to come together to form life either as we know it or as we don't know it. Mm -hmm. But this is a, a major um, realm of study in astrobiology is the, the study of life as we don't know it mm -hmm. and trying to, to force ourselves to face our Terran biases of mm -hmm. what we expect life to look like and, and be like and how we search for it, right? So when you send a, a mission to another world, you got to think, carefully ahead of time what instruments are going to help you look for that life um and what assumptions are you making that 
that life, if it is there, might surprise you with, right? Like, what if it uses different nucleo bases uh, in its in its DNA? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what if things are are just slightly different from on Earth in a way that your instrument that you sent to that world to look for life can't quite detect? Mm-hmm. And that's those those are the kinds of things that I think about for my research and my interest in astrobiology. Like, how do you actually search for that life? And then how can you be confident if you think you found it? How can you be confident in that right. finding? And, and I imagine the whole area of instrumentation can be its own uh, rabbit hole. Yeah. Of, like complete of, okay, we have, like you were saying, we have this sort of assumptions, but we might be, we might like account for a little bit outside of what we know just in case. And it's, it, you have to like, bring everything together right you have to bring the conditions of the other planet what you can physically bring to the other planet the money that it takes and the yeah, time that it yeah. that and it takes time. to develop all this technology and you know the time to even fly to these worlds mm-hmm. right like mm-hmm. when we when we go to mars they're very takes, far, far far apart yeah well, i mean it's on the order of months right like uh-huh. you know six to mm-hmm. six to ten months um depending on how how much fuel you can use to mm-hmm. fly but I mean, it is an entire. It's it's basically a lifetime or a, a career's lifetime to send a mission to the outer worlds, right? Mm-hmm. So if I'm on a mission that's going to send something to the outer worlds, and like we're coming up with concepts and proposing it now, I'll be retired or almost retired by the time those missions make it to those worlds. Right. So these are multi-generational missions mm-hmm. um, meant, you know, meant to expand our knowledge of science, but it's not just like one person is the principal investigator seeing this through. It is, it truly is the scientific community coming together to feed forward in making these missions happen. Yeah. And I think that's wonderful, right? Also just having this, large-scale collaboration of people trying to achieve the same goal, people trying to work out their differences just to make something happen and plan their time so that all the resources can align and just be able to do this amazing, like, endeavor. It, it, and it's very complex, right? I imagine, like, this this collaboration, maybe you can speed up speak about how like how big are the collaborations like I imagine you have to work with not only US universities and US researchers but also like international researchers Absolutely. and yeah like how 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 is this dynamics between how do you assign maybe just briefly like how do you assign work and mm-hmm. who works on what uh, yeah like how maybe Sort of the architecture of how yeah. the missions are set up. Yeah, so it de- it does depend on the um, the scale of the mission. So Curiosity and Perseverance are both what we call flagship missions. These are the, the biggest, yeah, largest caliber, largest architecture. Um, and so these are teams of hundreds of people, scientists and engineers. You know, there's the people who built the rover and built the landing system. Yeah. There are those people who um, are are operating effectively like the 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 software that helps us drive the rovers and manipulate the the arm to do science Mm -hmm. and to do all of this right and then there's the scientists who are 
applying their knowledge of how things work on Earth to interpret, all right, what is this environment we're in on Mars? What does it represent about the past? What can we learn by looking at the elemental composition of this rock? You know, like those kinds of questions. Um, but these missions are, are not just U.S. Um, they're, they're not U.S. only, I should say. So uh, at least Curiosity and Perseverance are operated um, out of the Jet Propulsion Lab um, in California. But they have instruments that are basically um, contributions from other space agencies around the world. And so we have colleagues working truly all over the world, all calling in at, at the same time, mm -hmm. um, working on science together. And so, you know, I do I do daily rover operations on the missions and I call in from my computer and we have a shared, you know, platform to to look at the data, to talk about it, to decide what analyses we want to do. And um, on a daily basis, effectively, you you look at the data, you say, all right, this is what we want to uh, study today. And then you send the scripts back to the rover for it to execute the next day. And so, um, you know, we have people calling in from all over the world during this. And so we try to time it so that on early days, uh, for example, our European colleagues try to call mm -hmm. in so that it's they're not working basically overnight. Uh, when we get into like later slide slide sols or slide days that start kind of late, um, even on the East Coast, you know, we try to take those shifts so that our <laughs> our colleagues don't have to stay up all night for for their rover operations uh, commitments. But it's really humbling also to see like I'm talking with people across the world some of these folks I've known for a, you know over a decade now and we work on a daily basis together to to do science on another world and we're like discussing you know these these minute details about how do we think these things formed what does it have to do with the preservation of you know potential life beyond earth and having these really profound conversations you know over the phone <laughs> with your with your colleague in France and it's, it's really mind-blowing to me that we're able to accomplish this. We do it on a daily basis on these missions. Um, it's, it's, it's something that helps me kind of put into perspective how readily we can all work together if we try. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and you bring in your students so that they can get a little bit of that pie. It's, it's also amazing just because I, as you were saying that not only – builds you as a scientist but it builds you as a person right it builds yeah. you like how to how to make something how to if you if you're trying to accomplish something ambitious how to make it happen how to bring all these people together into one same mission and just go for it like and all the process that it needs to happen yeah it's, it's i imagine it, it can be very tricky right and but yeah just just having your students like pushing them to get to know a little bit of this world. I think it's 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 super important for them and I imagine they're very grateful for that. So on that maybe how do you how important is teaching for you and how what is your philosophy on what Yeah how do you approach being a professor? Because uh, you you could only, you could only like, there's, there's definitely some people that are just like to do research, right? And they could live their whole life uh, just doing research without having any students at all. 
uh, but you've taken the time to build a lab you've taken the time to teach courses and teach special courses like uh, specialized to what you want to do uh, why are you doing this and why yeah what is the motivation for all this oh my goodness yeah such a such a broad question um so i i would just start by saying that um, UF is actually my second tenure track faculty position. My first one was at Towson University um, in in Maryland, and um, the program I worked with there, um, which was a physics, astronomy, geosciences, um, and um, science education department, basically all we were all combined together. Um, we had an undergraduate only geoscience program. You know, we we worked with environmental science. We could have master's students there, but it was, um, you know, three times as much teaching as I'm doing at UF, but I wanted that job and went into that job because I care about instruction, because I care about undergraduate education and research experiences and enabling students to pursue their career paths, especially when they never thought it was an opportunity or a possibility. So revealing to people, like, not only are geosciences an, an opportunity, um, a career path that a lot of people just don't know about, but helping them to accomplish their goals, especially those who are interested in space science. And I know a lot of people want to work with NASA, but they don't know what that path looks like. Mm -hmm. And so I, I tried um, at Towson and also at UF, I try to serve as a, a bridge for those students who are interested in those career paths. Um, it can feel overwhelming and, um, you know, to, to, to try to find a way into NASA and or space science in general. And so I try to be that available kind of mentor to, to help people navigate that. So, I mean, I've always cared about undergraduate education um, in part because my undergraduate education and research experiences made me who I am today. Without those, I wouldn't have gone down this career path. I wouldn't have this opportunity, and I wouldn't be able to feed it forward, you know, pay it forward to the students I get to work with now. So, you know, I care about it, and that, I'll tell you, caring about something is one of the greatest motivators to actually trying to do it well. Um, so I care about teaching well. I care about um, helping my students develop these transferable skills that are useful, whether or not they, they go into geosciences as their career path or not. Um, I love teaching intro courses because you get this opportunity to show people for the first time geosciences isn't just studying rocks. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the environment, it's the um, ecosystem, it's hydrology, it's geology, it's deep earth, it's like into the atmosphere, it's everything. And I really get so much joy of seeing that like realization for people the first mm -hmm. time they're like I didn't realize this was all connected mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. I experienced that as well as a as a college student so yeah I, I want my classes to be relevant to my students I want them to develop skills that are useful moving forward in their careers and that's you know presentations and writing skills and um, scientific synthesis right you need to be able to synthesize the data you see and come to interpretations and conclusions about it and those are the things that I try to encourage in all of my classes graduate and undergraduate level yeah and you talked about the transferable skills and I and I'm asking all these questions because I have seen the the parallel in engineering at least that a lot of people just go to schools and take classes and that's it and I don't think that's enough I think 
you're missing out on the university experience if you're just, just if you're just doing that and having the opportunity to be involved in these kinds of opportunities not only like doing really cool research but really cool research with important institutions that are really doing like the cutting edge work uh yeah it, it, it just it's just critical for the development of of what you want to become and mm -hmm. yeah and and i can say also that i've had that experience with i've been involved in labs in here in the uf that has made me acquire those skills and not only the skills but like knowing what is there to know right because one one when we enter as freshmen we don't really know what is there to know right and you know like this curve that we started to get to know all these areas and then we might get a little bit overwhelmed it's just i th i think the advice of just picking one and picking something that you feel it's exciting uh, and going for it and try to get as much out of it as possible i think that's that's that's, that's super valuable for people that are just thinking university that's just sitting in classes and listening to lectures and that's it i think you really need to get those skills and because that that's at the end what you're gonna do in the yeah whatever you end up doing after probably you're, you're not gonna work full-time or as a lecture listener right <laughs> yeah right if you if you find out how to get that job let me know <laughs> <laughs> i i yeah i see i definitely see what you mean with like Uh, sort of having having students engage with their education, right? So it's not just sitting in lectures and listening. And, and I think that a lot of classrooms have moved away from that model. Um, and, and, you know, there's so many ways to find out which faculty in the programs that you're, you're taking classes in, which faculty are doing more than just lecturing, who have uh, flipped classrooms, who have um, authentic research experiences in their classes, right? So that you can get an engaged education instead of necessarily just sitting and listening. And I would say that even if you, for example, don't don't think, okay, so say, so say you take one of my geology courses, but you're not going to be a geoscientist. Um, you know, that's not your career path that's fine. Mm -hmm. You can still get all of these skills from one of these classes, right? We do these, re these authentic research experiences where you go out and you learn to use like the field equipment that's common to a geologist. You learn to collect data, to synthesize it. Um, you're at the time you're, you know, presenting this work, you're honing your presentation skills and your writing skills, which are universally important. Um, to career paths beyond beyond whatever your education uh, goals are. And so it's not just like take these classes because you've got to take them. It's about getting experiences that enrich your experience, not, not, not just your education, but your life, right? You have more context, more empathy and appreciation for all of these fields you know, the sciences, um, humanities, liberal arts, like the whole thing, when you, when you experience all of these different um, projects that, that allow you to have, I think, a deeper respect for kind of the, the human experience. You get, to, you get to learn what it's like to be in someone else's shoes for a bit, and it doesn't necessarily have to be in a, a hardship way, but I think it makes one more empathetic mm -hmm. to, to, 
to people in general because you're seeing the breadth of experience. Um, I know it seems very, you know, <sighs> elevated to say that taking a geoscience course <laughs> will make you more empathetic to the human condition. <laughs> but, but I'm using that, of course, as a geoscientist, as an example to like take things that are outside of w- your comfort zone take classes or participate in experiences that are outside of what you would normally just say, okay, I'm going to do A, B, and C. Go see what X, Y, and Z look like. Just see what they look like. Mm-hmm. You don't have to, it's not, it's not necessarily your career, your path, but take it from me as an astrobiologist who works on Mars missions that when I went to college, I didn't know geosciences was a career path. Mm-hmm. Um, I had taken AP biology, so I knew I liked biology. And I said, all right, I'll be a biologist. And when I got to college, I said, you know, maybe I want to be a medical doctor. So I'll, I'll start down the pre-med path. And while all of these are excellent careers, finding your passion is, is hopefully one of the things that you're doing while you're at university, while you're in college. Find the thing that makes you want to get up and keep doing that work every day. And I love this job. And it was a very long path to get to it. um, And certainly not without challenges. But it is, I love getting up and doing this job every day. Um, And I certainly had people who helped me on my career path to realize I liked geosciences and that I wanted it to be my path. And just by taking these different experiences and seeing what was down those, those roads, I think that that really helped me to get to this point where I am extremely happy with what I'm doing. And it motivates me not just to get up and, and do research on Mars every day, which doesn't take a lot of motivation on its own, <laughs> but to but to want to come in and, and instruct others, teach others, show them that these are opportunities. All of that has become just like, there's not really a divide between my personal and professional life um, in, in those capacities because it's all, it's all just Amy. It's all just what I do and what I care about. And being able to do what you're passionate about every single day is um, an absolute blessing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, and I think people need to be... You were talking about this elevated view of studying... Uh, geology and I think you should have that view in everything that's that's at least part of the reason why I'm doing this I think almost everything can be well everything can be interesting right and you can find the beauty in everything you just gotta look deep enough to find it right and and you gotta stop and appreciate the meaning of all this stuff and I, I do find that beauty in engineering too and yeah I think what one needs to do is, as you were saying, just be courageous and go for it, right? I think, yeah, just having the opportunity to be in university and having an opportunity of choosing, I think it's a blessing. And just being able to explore all the opportunities that this institution can bring you. And yeah, one should try to take care of, try to, um take advantage of them as much as possible so on that note we've already talked about courage and just going going forward what you care about is there like a final advice you would like to give to students maybe undergraduates maybe freshmen maybe high school students that are starting their careers and maybe don't really know 
what's out there and what their career will be. It doesn't have to be a career advice. It can be anything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, number one, your career can change over the the course of your life, right? So don't feel like when you, if you select something like this is what I'm going to do forever. Um, it doesn't have to be and, and it shouldn't have to be if you don't want to. But I think the biggest thing I would say is reach out to anyone and everyone who you think can help you achieve whatever your goal is at that time. Mm-hmm. So um, oftentimes, at least for in my experience, it's been reaching out to professors, um, research advisors, um, people who have more experience than me, who can help me not only navigate that path of where do I want to go and what do I want to do, but to open your eyes to opportunities and possibilities that you you didn't know were options. I didn't know I could be a geoscientist leaving high school. And now it's my entire career and my passion. So reach out, ask for opportunities to work in uh, labs, to get internships, to experience different pathways so that when your career does start to settle and it may never completely settle, you've at least seen what your options are and you can, you can hopefully find your passion and live it every day and do good work worth doing thank you absolutely as a kid I always kind of pictured you know looking up at the stars that someone was out there on a world somewhere looking up at the stars in their sky and thinking I wonder if someone is out there and so the two of us thinking this at the same time light years apart